0: This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu
1: or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu.
0: I know Professor Watts John long time ago before he knows me. And <laughs> when I was a graduate student, his book just come out, and I write about the uh, social student movement for the 20th century China, especially Shanghai, which is my hometown. And it's actually immediately come out; it become a almost instant classic. I read a lot, and I cite I cite a lot in my book. I studied, uh, analyzed 89 movement. And after that, I'm watch Professor Watts John's intellectual, you know trajectory quite closely and uh, later on he published another book which is quite, you know, it's a co-edited with uh, uh, Liz Perry. Yeah, yeah it's called, uh, uh, what's the title? It's a student protest, it's a uh, popular protest of political culture in China. It's also become a widely cited book. And Professor was also published, uh, you know, edited books like uh, Chinese femininity and Chinese masculinity and uh, and the Human Rights and the revolutions, and uh, among other books. And also published in quite, you know, in Journal uh, of Asia Studies, and uh, lots of uh, reputable and uh, highly, you know, high-quality, you know, journals. And uh, the book, what currently Professor Wolfstrom would talk about, is a very serious book written by a scholar, but it's the, the target, the audience, obviously, is not just a... Uh, not just a, in a scholar cycle, but an American large audience. And that the book is important because, you know, he has some perspectives which as a China scholar, as a Chinese, I would never, I could never have. And that it's, he somehow cut in between a eye of a keen Chinese China expert, but nevertheless have a certain US based perspective. And you really, and then he has not only can the United States, uh, let, let me tell you a story. From like in nineteen ninety nine, the student movement after the bombing of you know after US bombed the US airplane bombed the Chinese Embassy in Belgrade. And uh, I studied these events and the uh, Professor Walsh studied these events. But when I studied events, my first question is, wow, Chinese must gone crazy. <laughs> they want, you know, at this point of time just a bombing and they want the, such a almost like a fascist nationalist movement to me. And you know, because what I at that time I read the US media. I little worried and I think that would be a terrible trend. I'll go back to study. And the Professor Wolstra at that time, he was there. He watched it day by day and read the American media and read the Chinese uh, Chinese newspaper. Both and if of course he felt dis, dis, dissatisfied for both. And he had kind of scary, but he talked about a lot of scare. But on the other hand, the major emotion, what intrigued him is not scare. But excitement, but curious. You know, and some of what some of things which he tell in the book, which I could never tell, because I don't have this kind of perspective, which is so nice. And uh, one thing, because people here want to know, another thing which I think you would never get from, uh, you know, American news media, is a story for. I I can tell you my personal story, you know, which is a good footnotes for this book. You know, three months ago, I brought back several professors from here and uh, to go, go back to China to study a seminar called uh, uh, Social Movement and collective Action. And before I go back, actually one of the professors a colleague of uh, 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 David Snow, and he also went there, Su Yang. And uh, before we went to China, David Snow, the, uh, McCarthy, and they are really very good at professors and they were widely well learned but they send me emails ask me are they going to ask me questions I, when the answers get wrong and some people come in and lock, you know just you know, took me away you know putting the jail or something you No, know, I, I if somebody asking me 89 movement how should I respond is that a taboo but after three weeks of program and they told me US media is at least 10 or 15 times lagged behind what happened in China so they will see. Actually, they're able to openly discuss in the classroom of 89 movement, and they see that almost every student read my book or some version of it through the internet or through whatever channels, and they watch the the they watch the you know watch some movie of uh, uh, movie clips and uh, in a for 89 movement for the massacres, and every student knows if they're interested. So those things we'll never know if we just read U.S. mainstream newspapers. But Professor John tells us much, much more in this book. So let's welcome for uh-huh. much. That was, very,
1: that was a very nice introduction. And um, I love the fact that there is a series called World Beyond the Headlines because this is a sort of perfect fit for what I'm trying to do in this book, which is to provide a perspective on China that um, counters much of what's going on in the American media. Though the one thing I wanna make clear is I'm not really so much critical of journalists per se because I think actually the moment, it's a kind of golden age for American journalism covering China. There are very smart journalists in the field, some of whom write extraordinarily well and have a long-term commitment to China as opposed to sometimes in the past when people would sort of parachute in and out, you know, spend a, a brief stint in China not necessarily knowing the language and so forth. But what happens is there's a filtering system, after I've been talking to a lot of journalists in the field, where sometimes the kinds of stories that journalists would like to tell that would counter the sort of mainstream narratives about China that we get in the press will then be in a form of um, censorship. Editors back home will say, well, that's not the kind of story that Americans will necessarily want to hear or can understand. And so there's a there's a system that, could, that gets into place that tends to sort of prejudge what Americans will want to know about China. And so this book is an attempt to do a kind of end run around that. And it's a different kind of book for me to write, a different kind of book for an academic to write. It has no footnotes, essentially. It's largely in the first person. Even though I'm talking about serious things, I sometimes do so playfully with a sense of whimsy. All those things they try to beat out of you in graduate school. I know there are some graduate students here, but, um, but you can recover. It's just hard work. So without further ado, I want to start um, doing um, a reading of, of a couple of chapters. This is the first book of mine that lends itself to this kind of a performance. Um, and this is, this is the, obviously the cover of the book. And this is the table of contents, just to give you a sense of um, the nature of the book. And I think you even get something of a sense of the style of it from some of the titles. My favorite title, which I'm not going to read, is is the title for Chapter 7, which has to do with a Chinese world traveler who went around the world in 1876 to go to the Philadelphia World's Fair, among other things. And while he was at the fair, his name was Li Gui. When he was at the fair, Mr. Lee was introduced to the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who a couple of years later took his own trip around the world that included a stopover in China. So, of course, that chapter I got to call Around the World with Grant and Lee. But the chapter I'm going to start with now is called Mr. Mao Ringtones. For more than, uh, sorry, this is now just the World Beyond the Headlines one. For more than a quarter of a century now, Chairman Mao's body has been on display in Beijing, lying in a glass coffin that has always reminded me of the one in which Snow White's sleeping body slumbered while she waited for her prince. Perhaps because of this, I've sometimes found myself wondering what Mao would make of today's China if he were suddenly brought back to life, though just whose kiss would have that life-restoring power in my updated version of the fairy tale I've never quite worked out. I suspect that the chairman would have profoundly mixed emotions about the country that he found upon awakening. He would surely be pleased to discover that the Communist Party that he helped found was still in power. He would be pleased that his face can be seen hanging sometimes from the rearview mirrors of cab drivers and that workers still sometimes carry his picture through the streets. But he would be dismayed to learn that the party that he helped found now welcomes capitalists into its ranks. He would be dismayed to find that, thanks to the popularity of fast food franchises, many Chinese children are more familiar with the face of Colonel Sanders than they are the face of any leader of the Communist Party. And that workers, when they carry his picture now through the streets, often do so when they're protesting being laid off from jobs in state-run factories that they'd been promised would be theirs for life. He would be gratified that one still hears the strains of the East is Red, the sort of that became a kind of personal theme song for him during the heyday of his personality cult, but perhaps not so much that one place where you hear that song these days is at flea markets where peddlers are peddling uh, Mao memorabilia, such as lighters which will have Mao's face on them, and when you flip the top up, as well as a flame, you'll hear the strains of the East is Red. My most memorable daydream about a revived Mao, fitting there's a cell phone sound at this one. My most memorable daydream about a revived Mao's take on 21st century China came to me during a brief 2002 stopover in the city of Nanjing. The daydream began while I was sipping a cappuccino in one of the city's nicest new cafes, the walls of which are covered with giant black and white images of European landmarks as part of an effort to give a cosmopolitan feel to this place that, according to my waitress, was funded by Taiwan investors. I found myself slipping into a reverie, wondering what Mao would make of this place, fittingly called the New Café, that is so completely unlike anything I encountered on my first trip to Nanjing, 16 years earlier, when I was first in China in the mid-1980s. When suddenly something surreal happened, as I was wondering this, I heard the sounds of the East is Red, And I looked around to see where they were coming from, because there was other music playing from the cafe's um, public address system or the sound system. But I heard the East is Red, and I looked around, and I couldn't see anybody with um, a boombox or anything else that would play it. And then suddenly the penny dropped when I saw that there was a couple at one of the next tables talking, one of them was talking on a cell phone. Clearly... The man, uh, who was the member of the couple, had programmed his cell phone to play out that old Mr. Mao song, as one seller of Mao memorabilia in Hong Kong described these read to me, whenever he had an incoming call. That cafe would not be the only Nanjing establishment that would give Mao pause, where he brought back to life. Other sites that would perplex him include the city's luxury hotels. There was only one when I first went there in the 80s, but now there are several. And the lavish department stores of the city, which in the 80s were the kinds of department stores you had to leave mainland China and go to Hong Kong to find. But if I could quiz Mao about his reaction to just one site in 21st century Shanghai, uh, Nanjing, it would be the Xianfeng bookstore, or rather the branches of the Xianfeng bookstore, because now there are, there are several. One of these, the original Xianfang, is located very close to Nanjing University and is viewed by intellectuals in the city as a central uh, major center of literary and cultural activity. That's testified by a special issue of Nanda Bao, Nanjing University Cultural News, which was devoted, uh, devoted a whole issue to intellectuals reflecting on what the bookstore meant to them. And this was handily handed out to each customer when I went to the bookstore in 2002. (laughs) According to one of the articles in this publication, uh, Xianfeng Books opened in 1996 as a small store catering to students and professors who were searching for hard-to-find novels, um, collections of poetry, or obscure academic texts. Within a few years, it had grown substantially so that it had a stock of about 30,000 books on a computer database to keep them all straight. And it also had a significant number of loyal patrons, some of whom contributed essays to that special issue of Nanda uh, Cultural News, elaborating eloquently on how important trips to Xianfeng to buy books, take part in author events, or simply to have discussions over coffee and tea with their classmates had become to them. Now there's a second branch of the bookstore that opened um, away from the campus in um, an underground shopping center, one of the sleekest—that's uh, just below one of the sleekest of the new department stores. It does not host as many special events as the original campus branch, and it lacks tables for drinking tea and coughing about idea, talking about ideas that can be found at the original Xianfeng. It does, however, have one advantage that you see here: an elegant curving glass-fronted facade. It also, at least when I visited in 2002 and again in 2004, had more eye-catching displays in the forms of colorful stacks of books artfully placed about the store. Now Chairman Mao would approve of the name of the bookstore. One translation of Xianfeng is Vanguard, as in the party is the vanguard of the revolution. But he might be a bit displeased to realize that the proprietor clearly had a second meaning of Xianfeng in mind as well, avant-garde as in those who experiment with artistic forms. And Mao might find disturbing the obsession with bilingual labeling that is seen in both branches of the store that I visited. Both are known not just as Xianfeng, Shudian, but also as Librarie Avant-Garde, using French instead of English as the second language to give it that certain je ne sais quoi. (laughs) And even more disconcerting to Mao than seeing this bilingual labeling would be the first sites he encountered upon walking into either branch. In the smaller branch, the campus one, when I visited, no, the smaller branch, the um, underground one at the the fancy mall I visited in 2002, for example, one of the artfully arranged displays you saw when you walked in were stacks of the Chinese translations of the three controversial height reports on sexuality in America. To enter the original campus branch of Xi'an Feng, meanwhile, that same year, You had to pass by a wall containing, in turn, images of Che Guevara. Mao might approve. Jesus Christ. Mao would be annoyed. And Marlon Brando and Al Pacino dressed for their roles in The Godfather. Mao would be simply confused. Browsing the stacks, the chairman would find a wide variety of works, much more diverse than he would expect to see, and much more diverse than a Western um, visitor whose knowledge of China came mainly through mass media soundbites might imagine would be on offer. And here in this slide, you see images of James Joyce and Walter Benjamin, which suggest that the avant-garde wasn't necessarily the political vanguard of a Leninist party but rather an avant-garde in the sense of testing the limits of artistic um, expression. Now it's certainly true that the Communist Party can still behave brutally toward groups and individuals it views as threats to its monopoly on power and that the regime strives to censor discussion of taboo subjects on the internet and in the press. So things like Tibetan independence and Falun Gong are strictly uh, censored, any discussion of that. But framing the China story as one of rapid economic change, combined with complete political stasis, as it often is in the Western media, can lead outsiders to underestimate the extent to which cultural and intellectual life has been changing in the PRC and continues to change. Now, to be fair, the Western mass media sometimes will talk about new books being published. They'll talk about the latest Harry Potter or the Da Vinci Code being translated and selling like hotcakes in a Chinese bookstore talk about Hollywood movies being seen legally or being via the black market but there is much more to the cultural story of changes in China than just talking about translations or availability of foreign works of fiction are concerned there's also an availability of all sorts of works of nonfiction by all kinds of authors that you wouldn't have seen um, just a couple of decades ago and you also see within China that's left out of this story of political stasis, the fact that now, in contrast to the past, there's a space for apolitical works. In other words, there are things like um, pictorial works, even about the past, which in the pa- which under, under Mao would need to have a didactic meaning that would need to hew to political lines. But now there can be more of them that simply present um, images from, from another time. There are unusual things about many sections of the Xianfeng uh, bookstores. But the one that I want to linger on, the one that I think would cause Mao the biggest problems, or at least lead to the most um, serious ruminations about where his country had gone, is the philosophy or Jushui section. And they were unlike anything, when I went to Xianfeng the first time, they were unlike anything I remembered seeing in the philosophy sections of any Chinese bookstore in the 1980s when I was first there the mid-'80s, and even more far removed from that in Mao's day. In Mao's own day, the philosophy section, or theory, it would be called, section in those days, would only have his own works and those of canonical thinkers of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. By the 1980s, things had opened up a bit. By the mid-1980s, you could see some things by neo-Marxist thinkers newly translated. In fact, there was also Max Weber was being translated. But still, there tended to be domination um, by Marxist theorists of one sort or another. But when you flash forward to 2002, Xianfeng, as well as its Beijing and Shanghai counterparts, routinely were containing translations of works such as Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, books by Hayek and Heidegger, and social theory samplers that let readers know what foreign scholars like Habermas, Bourdieu, and Giddens had been up to. And in fact, you would have a much better selection of Western liberal philosophy in this bookstore than in any standard Midwestern or coastal branch of Borders and Barnes and Noble. A book by the Indian economist and philosopher Amartya Sen was on, on display at Xianfeng branch in 2002, as was a book entitled, perhaps optimistically, Understanding Foucault. So what would Mao's verdict? on Xianfeng B. Here I think there are three different possibilities. One is that Mao would think that the Communist Party that he had, he had led for so long had totally lost its way. They indulged in this bourgeois decadent uh, beliefs and they were sure to crumble soon. That's one possibility. But I think there are two others. A second possibility is that Mao would feel nostalgic going into this bookstore. It would remind him of the bookstores or the, the mood of his youth. In the 1910s, China had been a country in which intellectuals were looking to many different parts of the world for inspiration, for ideas. It was a time when foreign intellectuals, as again, would go on lecture tours in China and attract large crowds of people looking for a way. Then it wasn't Amartya Sen, it was Tagore who did a a tour of introducing one branch of Indian philosophy. In the 1910s, it was John Dewey who drove big crowds, the American philosopher. More recently, it it was Derrida and Habermas. So Mao might be nostalgic, or he might be dismayed, but I think there's a third possibility that may be even more likely than those, and that's that he might look at Xi'an Feng and think that the Communist Party was actually very canny, that his current leaders were very good followers of one part of his thought, After all, one of Mao's most famous lines was that power comes from the barrel of a gun. And he might think, as long as the party controls the guns, and as long as growth rates stay high, the party could do well. And what harm would it do them? What would it really matter if they gave certain kinds of often troublesome people, like intellectuals and students, attractive places to buy their books and more choices about what to read? Having access to these nice consumer goods, after all, might lead students, notoriously troublesome group in Mao's lifetime and after, might even keep them from taking to the streets, at least for a while. Okay, That's the end of um, the, the chapter. And here I have as a kind of break between move, before moving on to another chapter, an image that I think helps express, and this uh, Professor Zhao and I were talking about this before, how complicated it is to figure out what's acceptable or not, or what's going to create an issue when you go to China, because the notions of censorship and other things are shifting so many ways. So when I was going to China in 1999, I had recently contributed a piece to something called Media Studies Journal, which was um, devoted to issues of China. And I had written about Tiananmen Square, Uh, It was in 1999, so it was the 10th anniversary of the um, 1989 protests. And I had written about Tiananmen Square as a site of protest 80 years before, during the May 4th movement of 1919, and 10 years before in 1989, and how the government would be marking one anniversary and trying to prevent people from marking the other anniversary. 1919 is celebrated as a patriotic movement. 1989, the government tries to pretend it didn't exist. Uh, And I wrote about the fact that in Tiananmen Square, you can see a monument honoring the student patriots of 1919, but the, the students of 1989 who are also patriots don't have any memorial there. So I was given a lot of copies of this, and I thought it would be nice to bring this magazine to China to give to some of my friends and colleagues. And at the last minute, I chickened out. I thought they might take them from me at the airport. I might be hassled. So I didn't bring them to show to my friends. And they had some more subversive or dangerous um, pieces in that same issue than the one that I had written. And so then, a while later, I was in Shanghai at a flea market. And here was a copy of that very magazine for sale. It had already been circulating through back channels there. So I show this image because it shows a sort of humility. Even if somebody who's trying to track the trends of openness and censorship in China, we don't always guess right. And if anybody tells you they know exactly what's acceptable and not acceptable at any given moment in China, be a little skeptical of them. I won't read the next couple of chapters, but I'll rather talk you through them, um, showing some images to go to them. And and I don't believe usually in showing PowerPoint anything other than images, but here I put a couple of um, sentences up that I will read, though I don't usually um, do this, and certainly in the classroom. And this is from the title chapter of the book, China's Brave New World. The first is something that George Orwell wrote to somebody responding to a letter that he'd been written in 1943. He said simply, I think you overestimate the danger of a brave new world. He, and we he went on to say, by that he meant a completely materialistic, vulgar civilization. The danger of that kind of thing is past. In 1943, he said. The other quote is from... Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, who happened to be one of Orwell's teachers at Eden when Orwell was, was young, and at one point actually asked Orwell to write an essay on the meaning of dictatorship, which unfortunately we don't know. We, we've, that's been lost to history, so we don't know if he was trying out the first things of 1984 that would ultimately be the most famous dystopian novel about dictatorship, even more famous than his teachers, uh, Brave New World. So Aldous Huxley wrote, and the full quote is, I had to wait a long time before being able to bar- embark on 1984. Agreeing with all that the critics have written of it, I, I need not tell you how fine and how profoundly important the book is. Just what a student would want to get from his former teacher who, to whom he had sent a copy of his book. Then the teacher goes on, but whether the boot-on-the-face style of dictatorship it describes can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and satisfying its lust for power, and that these ways will resemble those which I described in Brave New World." The teacher saying he thinks he was right all along. This piece begins, again, in a personal vein. And I'll read just a little bit of it. Why couldn't they have picked 1984 instead? This was my first thought in August of 2002 when a faculty member from Heidelberg College who had invited me to come to speak at his Ohio campus mentioned on the phone that all the incoming freshmen would be reading one novel to get ready for to have a common experience for the new year. And that book was going to be Brave New World. Now the reason I had this reaction was I'd been invited to come there to speak about the event that all of the incoming freshmen were going to be studying that year, along with reading a book. They were going to read a novel together, and they were going to study a historical event, the events of 1989 in China. And the film, The Gate of Heavenly Peace, for which I had been a consultant, was going to be shown, and I was going to answer questions and talk about 1989. And the first thing that I thought was, and they said, if you can somehow connect what you're going to say to the book they're reading, that would be great. We'll still pay you anyway if you don't, but it would be great if you could find some way to do that. And I thought if it was 1984, it would be so easy. 1984, The events of 1989 seemed to cry out for Orwellian analysis. Here was a case of a Big Brother-like state crushing a popular movement. And then after the movement, in classic Newspeak fashion, made famous by Orwell's book, the government pretended that nothing had existed. To say there was no protest in 1989, just a riot, And that there had been no protesters killed, just a few thugs put in in their place, and some brave soldiers died in the process. When we know that there were large numbers of ordinary urbanites who had come out to support the students, and a significant number of students as well who had died that day. This was a classic case of a Big Brother state saying two plus two equals five. So if they'd been reading 1984, my task would be simple. And I also thought that my task would be simple in making conversation with people at that moment about contemporary, contemporary affairs in America if they'd been reading 1984. Because this was in 2002 that I was invited to give this talk. It was right. It was soon after 9-11. It was during the buildup to um, the Iraq War. Bush had been calling Saddam Hussein the big brother of the Middle East, invoking Orwellian imagery. And Bush himself had been talking about the need for a potentially endless war on terror, which is very much like what the Big Brother state in um, 1984 did to keep people uh, going along with their policies, was to say that um, we needed to be in a constant state of vigilance, hence you needed a powerful state. So whatever your political perspective, 1984, the language of it was very much in the air. I even knew there was a television show called Big Brother that people were watching, the reality show, and I thought, okay, even if I'm making just casual conversation about pop culture, 1984 is easy. Brave New World. How's that going to work? See, I didn't remember much about Brave New World. All I really remembered about Brave New World, perhaps because I read it as a teenager, was that it involved a drug called Soma that made you feel really good and forget all your worries, and that there were some sort of semi, well, pornographic movies called feelies that were all all-consuming and um, would make D.H. Lawrence blush, and that that was what I remembered of the the world, of Brave New World, and I didn't see how that related to China or to contemporary America. But I then went and reread Brave New World, which I hadn't since I was a teenager, and I was struck as I was preparing for this talk by how many things actually fit, um, both for China and for the United States. And here I have images of what now I think of the Brave New World versus 1984 scenarios. Brave New World, people are kept um, in line in an authoritarian state by the state playing to their desires and, their, um, and keeping them sort of busily distracted so that they don't protest, as opposed to in a state of fear so that they don't protest. Also though I don't play this up as much in the book as I, as I, um, as I wish I had now, in the Brave New World state, people are also kept from feeling common cause with one another because they all have different lifestyles based on different tastes and structures. In 1984, people are kept in place by fear. But if they ever do rise up, any one group of them will get instant sympathy from others because they all feel they're in the same state of um, discontent with the regime. In Brave New World, if one group did protest, the other groups wouldn't see that, that protesting group as having anything in common with them and wouldn't be likely to join them on the streets. So now I increasingly think of 1989 as having been a 1984 moment for China. But the period since 1989, I think, has been a brave new world period, largely. It's not so cut and dried as that. The Chinese regime definitely does still, at times, use the boot on the face techniques when faced with certain kinds of threats. So there are still 1984 or Orwellian moments. But much of what keeps the regime in power is much more of the Brave New World scenario. And I think it's also the Brave New World scenario as much as anything else that leads to a degree of depoliticization in the United States. When we don't protest, part of it might be oppressive things from a government, the Patriot Act, but a lot of it is just a quality of life that keeps us all very busily distracted and feeling separated from one another by patterns of consumption, that are very distinctive to particular generational cohorts, particular, um, particular ethnic groups, particular classes. And so I think in that way, in 2003, there was a lot of hoopla made. A lot of people reread 1984 because of the 100th anniversary of Orwell's birth. And I think 2003 should have been Orwell's year. But I'm afraid that 20, the 21st century may turn out to be Huxley's century. I actually discovered while I was preparing for that Heidelberg talk that I'd gotten a lot of things wrong, including even my reading of popular culture, American popular culture. The Big Brother television show is modeled on 1984 because people are kept under constant surveillance, and that you know, that is the Big Brother element. But the Big Brother television show, its main impact is all of the people being kept, in, being kept busily distracted by watching it carrying it much more of the kind of Huxley uh, scenario of that and so I think being bombarded by sensation that often can make can get in the way of sort of reasoned conversation worrying about ideas talking about politics organizing is something that is a strategy used by the Chinese government but it's not just the Chinese government that is operating in a structure in which some of these brave new world kinds of phenomena exist So here's just a slide that shows you some of the ways in which people in China these days are being kept busily distracted. There now, as in Tokyo, television screens all over the streets of Shanghai. When you're walking along the streets of Shanghai, you're always looking at things around you, bombarded in part by images of the city in which you're walking. So it's almost as though you're walking through a movie, that we're all becoming very voyeuristic, and it gets in the way of any potential For organizing Um, before I was thinking about Huxley I was going to write a piece about this phenomenon called what if they built a public sphere and nobody came because there are increasingly opportunities of sorts for kinds of public activity that then aren't taken in part because the nature of public life is so um, busily distracting And one of the most, uh, one of the examples that brought that to mind was in 1999, soon after I'd made that decision not to carry that uh, journal with the potentially subversive thing about May 4th into China, the um, 10th anniversary of the Tiananmen protests, uh, no, the, the 80th anniversary of the May 4th movement rolled around. And though the May 4th movement's anniversary is celebrated by the state, It's also been a time when protesters, including those of 1989, have used the opportunity of looking back to an earlier protest movement to um, issue statements saying that the current regime needs to be struggled against in the way that in 1919, patriotic students had struggled against warlords. So it's a sensitive moment. May 4th is a sensitive moment when the government celebrates their version of, of the protest tradition but tries to keep anybody else from putting out things that challenge that and move things in a, in a protesting direction. So I went to a local internet cafe on May 4th in 1999 near Beijing University. And just as an experiment, I tried to see how long it would take me to be able to find on the web some reference to a dissident manifesto invoking the May 4th anniversary. And a lot of sites were blocked. But quite quickly, I found a site on an American newspaper The New York Times was blocked, but individual local newspapers that picked up New York Times stories weren't, I quickly found something by um, a Chinese Democratic group operating in the mainland that had managed to circumvent things to issue a statement saying that in the spirit of May 4th that we all honor for patriotic activism, people should should call to attention the failings of the current regime. I thought this is amazing. Despite all the Big Brother states' attempts to block access to the internet, Chinese students could be here reading this subversive text right now, just as I have. It's easy to find. So I thought, this is the limits of the Orwellian scenario. And then I looked around, and none of the students were doing what I was doing, looking at newspapers, online, or any kind of news. They were playing, as members of their generational cohort around the world, were often playing at that time, first-person shooter games, which I thought of as the feelies of the current time. So it did strike me at that moment that there was more value in looking at Huxley's explanation of how an authoritarian regime can stay in in power than in Orwell's. Here I have some more images just there of um, the kind of brave new world in this sense of being bombarded with sensation of the city of Shanghai now, which is an extreme case of that. Um, Does thinking about China in this way offer any clues as to what the future holds for the PRC? I'm still too new to looking at the PRC through this lens of Huxley and the Brave New World to venture any definitive prognostication. I try to avoid prediction because China specialists are so often wrong when we predict the future. China keeps defying prediction, and that's something we need to keep in mind. I have, however, been struck by one possible future twist, which has to do with a Brave New World theme linked to literature. One of the many ways in which Huxley imagined things would be different, six centuries hence, when in the year of R. Ford, 634, which I think was what he imagined the time of um, Brave New World, when it was a stability-obsessed period, like the current stability-obsessed period in China and elsewhere, he, he imagined that works that were once considered canonical would be viewed as smut. In the Brave New World of the future, Shakespeare's plays, for example, are banned And on the other hand, things that were once considered obscene are considered routine, such as um, the feelies that I described that would make even D.H. Lawrence's steamiest novels seem tame. Well, in China today, an equivalent kind of reversal has not taken place across the board, but it is easy to suppose that it could. There has already been a dramatic shift, as the regime allows many books that would have once been considered obscene or pornographic to be sold, And with social stability prized and high growth rates seen as the key to stability as well as a source of national pride, formerly taboo concepts relating to the economy are being integrated into government documents, things that were once seen as politically obscene, ideas of celebrating the free market, are now routine. And once forbidden, foreign works are being studied for possible clues for helping uh, to enrich individual Chinese and the Chinese nation as a whole. Even if the authors of those works first gained fame, in part via their criticisms of communism, this does not place those Western writers, imported writers, beyond the pale. Now, I mentioned the situation to a Soviet specialist colleague of mine, and he was intrigued. He was intrigued as well when I said there were times when you could buy Orwell's books openly in bookstores in China, because one of the defining features of the Soviet system was that you would never be able to buy Orwell except in an underground form because the state couldn't allow something that subversive to circulate. So he asked me what kinds of books still remain taboo, off limits. I said books about Tibet, books about Taiwan that suggest independence, and works by Chinese dissidents. But he pressed me. He said, isn't there any Western writer who's viewed as dangerous, too hot to handle? So I thought about this for a while, and one possibility did come to mind, of someone who has not been banned yet in China, but a a foreign writer who might. This is a foreign writer whose work stressed that in a world of increasing disparities between rich and poor, like the People's Republic of China, it is good for the poor to band together against and make demands on the rich. He also taught that conflict, not stability, leads to progress. The Western thinker I have in mind, whose books I could imagine being banned, is, of course, Karl Marx. All right, I have one more. Thank you for your patience. I have one more, um, one more presentation that um, I will, again, talk through rather than um, read. And I'll talk through it very quickly so that there's time for, for questions. And this refers to what Professor Zhao was describing, which was my take on the 1999 protests, which I happened to be in China for that May 4th anniversary conference um, to observe. And what I show on the, on the board here, these two images, show what the standard American media line was. How far we've come from 1989, when Chinese students rallied around the Statue of Liberty and American ideals, to 1999, when in this image, as you see from a wall poster from that time, the Statue of Liberty is, is being presented as a fascistic symbol. How did we get from this pro-Americanism as it's imagined, to anti Americanism. Now, there are problems with this on both sides. The 1989 protests, though often presented in the West uh, or in America as a pro American movement for liberal democracy, were in fact much more complicated and largely were a movement against corruption and were an effort to get the Chinese Communist Revolution back on track as opposed to a complete rejection of everything that the Communist Party had ever stood for. So I think this this notion is wrong, both about what 1989 meant. Yes, there were students who rallied around, in this case, a Shanghai carrying the uh, replica of the Statue of Liberty, and yes, in Beijing, there were people who quoted American slogans, we shall overcome, give me liberty or give me death, and rallied around a goddess of democracy, which had Statue of Liberty-like features, though also Chinese um, folk religious features. But there was much more to 1989 than that. It wasn't a simple effort to make China a country like America. It was rather to get the Chinese Communist Party to live up to the best ideals within the Chinese revolutionary tradition, which included some respect for uh, human rights and individual rights. But similarly, 1999 was more complicated than just a kind of rabid, xenophobic rejection of, um, of the West. One thing that happened in 1999 while I was there and happened in different ways on both sides of um, the Pacific, was that people brought up the Boxer uprising. W- there were American uh, of ambassadors pinned within the um, American Embassy in Beijing. and the boxers of 1900 are remembered in the West via things like this Charlton Heston movie, 55 Days at Peking. As for the remembered, uh, it just happens to be a French, it was a Hollywood movie, but the best image on the web of it was of this French um, poster. Um, That's one in which the story of the boxers is told as one in which rabid Chinese xenophobes kept Westerners trapped inside uh, foreign legations until in the Hollywood version, the Marines um, march in, the cavalry, Including Charlton Heston, as well as soldiers from marching under eight, eight, seven different foreign flags, march in and free the foreign hostages. But in China, that event is remembered quite differently. It's remembered as that happening, some of these things happening, but then those armies marching under eight foreign flags carrying out indiscriminate looting and um, revenge campaigns in which they behaved at least as savagely as the Boxers ever had. So when the embassy bombing took place and then the crowds gathered outside of the embassy, the Western press, USA Today said, hasn't China learned anything since the Boxer uprising. Look, they're being xenophobic again. Whereas some Chinese at a point later writing about it says, the world doesn't seem to have changed all that much since 1900, here is the West once again disrespecting Chinese lives, not even um, fully apologizing in the way that um, they would if it were another kind of country hurt in the way that um, when, after all, Chinese were killed in an embassy in a foreign country, and sort of turning the boxers in a different way. That was just one example in which I found both the Western and the Chinese press oversimplifying by drawing on overly simplistic analogies. With the past, what I saw happening on the streets was much more complicated, and I actually had very mixed emotions about the events of that time because I what I saw was, among other things, it was Chinese youth. The other thing that was said in the West was that the Chinese youth were being told to protest and were being manipulated by the state into this show of rabid nationalism. What I saw on on the scene was Chinese youths who were angry at what had happened to, their, to the people, from fellow citizens from their country, jumping uh, on the opportunity to take to the streets and also being frustrated by not having the ability to protest about anything, to take to the streets, to speak out about anything, in which genera- and generations of Chinese students have been taught that one of the things you do as a college student is take part in a patriotic movement. They leapt to the streets, and the state then jumped ahead of it to try to steer it in a particular direction. Well, when I got back from this, uh, observing this, I was continually asked one question. Were you scared? And it always struck me as very strange, because while in some very, it was portrayed in the Western press as a very scary moment to be an American in China. And I did learn how to say, I'm Australian. <laughs> I was told this by a, a journalist who I watched some of these. That just to be safe, let's <laughs> let's do this. Canadian won't work. They're part of NATO. Um, so I learned to say that. And there was one moment when I was scared. I was uh, with a group of people near the embassy district. And somebody across the street said, yelled across, Nisher ran, and if you are, I want to kill you. But he stayed on the other side of the street. He didn't cross the street. And there were police around there who Clearly, we're limiting who could enter the area where the protests were taking place, and we're keeping out workers, but allowing in students, feeling that if the workers were allowed in, things might get out of hand, and also by this time there was more worry about worker outrage than student. But fear, except for that brief moment, wasn't the main emotion I, I felt. And even when I was fearful, I still felt that I was better off being an American than being Japanese given the anti-Japanese sentiment. And the Japanese had nothing to do with NATO. They had nothing to do with the bombing of Serbia in which this had taken place. And yet, the only foreign students who left China in 1999 because of worries were a group of Japanese exchange students who had been encircled in their their dorm area by Chinese students who wanted them to uh, apologize for having disrespected the patriotic movement. And there are different stories about what the Japanese students had done. According to one story making the rounds, they'd said, better your embassy than ours. According to another story that went around that seemed probably the most likely, some Japanese youths had simply been playing soccer, and their soccer ball had knocked down a protest poster. And the Chinese students had interpreted this as disrespect for the protest um, movement. But... In America, I was thinking that an anti-American movement would have this particularly hatred of individual Americans. But what I saw was that what many of the people I met with said, we hate your government, but we don't hate you. And um, don't hold us responsible for everything our government does. You know, we're people. And in, especially when I got to Shanghai, as opposed to Beijing, people said, min, fu fu. this is about governments. This is uh, governments, not about people. So I thought there were all sorts of things that the Western press, by focusing on this endangered Americans revival of the boxers, were missing about what was going on in the streets. One thing they were missing was simply that students were reveling in the opportunity to be expressing themselves in a public setting, something that it seemed to me to suggest, though I think things have have kept this from happening, the possibility for a kind of rebirth of student um, political engagement. Another thing they missed was that some of, the pros- some of the posters were quite juvenile and nasty, and some of the slogans were, and this distressed me, but some were quite creative, taking the opportunity of being on the street to talk about other things. And the students actually did some things that the government, even though the government supported their protest, said, enough's enough, don't do that, and the students went ahead and did that. Like the government said, don't have boycotts of foreign goods. But students who'd grown up boycotting, uh, who'd grown up hearing stories about the patriotic boycotts of Japanese goods in the earlier day were calling for um, things like don't eat at McDonald's, don't drink Coca-Cola. This is one of the nasty posters, down with NATO blood for blood. But many others were um, a bit more creative, even when they were kind of nasty. And this is one of my favorites, which is a shot of the American eagle with each of his feathers as a missile. And there were, um, that was one. This is another one, which. Um... All right, so there was a bit of juvenile nastiness, as well as no more, Coca- no more cola, no more Nike. We want peace, we want justice. And I'll give you the, since this is going out on webcast, I'll give the uh, PG-13 version, um, down with NATO, down with USA, down with Clinton, down GRE, down TOEFL. Only the word "down" is spelt with four letters that begin with F. Okay, so this was um, this this image I want to linger on because it was very um, very colorful. There was obsession with Clinton's sex life. This was another thing. There was there was one. I'll show you a slide in a minute that said um, Clinton is a bi-raper. First he raped Monica, and now he's raping the world. Which was taking things to an extent that even right-wing, uh, the great right-wing conspiracy, I don't think, ever quite put it this way. But there was this just showed there was a period of kind of chaotic, interesting things coming from uh, around the world. It wasn't a complete rejection of all the cosmopolitan trends that had been happening. It was a strange twist on them. All right, this, this image uh, I want to mention because, um, the other thing, another thing that was missed in the Western press, and I think is often missed in the Western press and coverage of China and is something that I deal with in the book in several places, is that China is treated as a singular entity. And what's sometimes said is that the period, uh, there's, there's been a resurgence of nationalism in China, which there has been, which is interpreted as something that is a return to a homogenized um, version of all Chinese thinking alike, as in under Mao. The worst version of this that I heard was uh, the Weekly Standard said that China had become a Borg-like nation in which the Borgs and Star Treks, for any of you who don't know, is this sort of beings that have only one collective mind. And this played into a whole tradition of thinking of um, East Asian societies at different points. It's been grafted on different parts of East Asia as being totally conformist in this. Um, But what I saw was not only differences among Chinese within any one place, but within this nationalistic movement, there was intense difference between local locales. And so with the rise of resurgence of nationalism, there's also been a resurgence of local identity in China. And that's something that the Western press has only fitfully covered. So that when I went from Beijing to Shanghai, and I noticed a change in the mood. In Beijing, they were more kind of intensely, that was where the person was threatening to kill me from across the street. In Shanghai, they were, and and I was telling people I was Australian. When I got to Shanghai, I instantly felt that people were not taking the movement the same way. And that I started saying I was American and having some enjoyable discussions with people about what I thought the movement meant. I would break the ice by saying, you know, this is nostalgic for me. When I was a kid, I used to go to anti-American imperialism demonstrations during the Vietnam War. I was a very young anti-Vietnam protester. And so, you know, here you are. You're complaining about American imperialism. I, I, I can see where you're you're coming from. And that always, that always got a laugh um, in Shanghai. And I was talking about how in Shanghai there just seemed to be this very different mood because of a different kind of engagement um, with the West. Though a couple of years later, anti-Japanese protests in Shanghai would be very intense. At that time, the, there wasn't the same level of anti-Americanism there. And when I got to um, to one Shanghai university to look at the posters, I noticed there were some very beautiful ones there that seemed to not have the juvenile nastiness of um, the Beijing ones. And I do think there was a real difference between the two places. But one um, student at Shanghai said, "I I I shouldn't exaggerate this too much because I was there one day later," and she wanted to convince me that early in the movement, there had been just as there had been real passion and patriotism in Shanghai. Because the other thing, youth in the two cities wanted to tell you, even in the midst of this nationalistic movement, why their city was better than the other city in which the patriotic movement was taking place. So this student showed me this picture of the down with NATO and Clinton and so forth. And so I had to exchange, of course, with the one that I had taken in Beijing about Clinton as the bi just so you know I'm not making that part up. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought about the fear narrative. I thought I could tell a really good story if I played up how dangerous it was to be in China. And this is something that, you know, the sort of traveler to Asia as heroic figure is a very tempting thing. There's a rich tradition of this kind of writing. And here was my chance. Because everybody said, you know, I was, you know, you must have been scared. And what really gave me a special uh, feeling for this was that Arnold Schwarzenegger canceled a trip to China presumably because he'd heard it was a Borg-like nation and you know he was fine fighting science fiction demons in his movies, but he wasn't so sure he wanted to do it in, in reality. So um, I thought, well, great. I'll pretend I'm scared and I'll write a piece about it called To Boldly Go Where the Terminator Feared to Tread. <laughs> but that just, that just wouldn't work. There were too many things I'd have to leave out of the story if I made it about you know, danger. There were there were things like, for example, that nobody seemed to mind me taking pictures at places like um, the consulate in Shanghai, the American consulate that had just been splattered with ink. Um, but I was hassled taking pictures someplace else, in Kentucky Fried Chicken outlets, where I was trying to take some photos for a friend of mine who was studying the global circulation of, um, of um, fast food chains. So this is where I was kicked out of taking a photograph. And I wasn't kicked off any campus. I didn't get hassled by the police when I was looking around. I mean, admittedly, that could happen in a different kind of protest. But in this particular one, I was able to go everywhere. But I was hassled by the police once, when I tried to walk into the the sparkling new Shanghai public library wearing sandals, because that was viewed as disrespectful. So those were things that wouldn't fit in. Other things that wouldn't fit into that story. And here's here's the Fudan. uh, This is something that I thought of had some sort of, of, um, of beauty to some of the images. But also, the clearly, the government had said, don't call a boycott. That will interfere with China's economic development. And some students were calling for a boycott. So there wasn't this sort of complete manipulation Borg-like control. And this is actually the thing that I want to linger on that really destroyed the Borg-like notion of the Chinese uh, students as this kind of groupthink mentality. This was a protest meeting that I or a explanatory meeting about the protests that uh, a local uh, that a teacher had called to explain to the students the situation he was a specialist in international affairs the school has said you should it's time for the protests to stop but we need to meet with the students and kind of explain what's going on so I was told about this this meeting and was told there would be plenty of other foreigners there so it'd be fine for me to come so I should come to this meeting if I was interested in the the protest. So I came, and I was the only non-Chinese there. So I tried to sit by the door, but my um, the students there were much much too polite. They said we don't believe that this was an accident. The American line was this was a pure mistake. They said you know your technology is so good it couldn't have been an accident. This was the common line in China then. I said, well, a few days before, you were trying to do this to scare the Chinese nation. I said, well, a few days before we hit that embassy in Belgrade, we hit an Italian ski lift, and the Italians are our, our allies. And that clearly wasn't to teach the Italians a lesson. But still, there was this veneration for American technology. And I said, you know, I'm not going to say that it's unthinkable that some, um, that this was a mistake that shouldn't have been made, it was definitely that. I was trying to explain, though, that I didn't believe some of the conspiracy theories. So he said, oh, that's a very good point. Come come, get a seat in the middle so you know we can keep talking about this when the, 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 the gathering starts. So the gathering starts, and uh, I sat by the window. I managed to move over to the window, and I remembered from this university from when I was there in the 80s that you could actually exit through the windows. So I felt happier then. I wasn't too scared, but it was a strange feeling to be there. Um, they passed around uh, a poster that had separate characters that, sort of, put together meant "Down with American-led NATO hegemonism," and a, and a lot of them would all of them wanted to sign it to kind of verify their participation in this historic event, which they did see as fitting within this narrative of patriotic engagement by students through time. They didn't think I should sign it; they didn't ask me to. It wouldn't have been right, but they all signed it. And then the the talk the the speech went on, and the speech was essentially saying. It was really great that you all expressed your patriotic uh, fervor about this event. But now it's time to work hard and keep building uh, um, a strong, prosperous China. And um, things went on from there. But the most interesting moment for me of, um, of the meeting was when the instructor, uh, when the professor said, how many of you protested in the last couple of days? And half, roughly half, a scattering put their hands up. And half didn't. In a Borg-like state, in a 1984 state, if you've been told that the protests are a good thing, you all put your hand up. Because either you went, or now you're pretending you went. So the fact that there were these different reactions, I thought, said a lot about uh, how, some of the complexity in China. This is just one of the pretty posters that's right by the image that I showed you at the beginning of the Statue of Liberty with the swastika. And this is just about China becoming engaged with the world. But it's, a, it's clearly students, youth uh, taking, taking advantage of a moment to be, have public activity. All right, I'll explain this image in a moment. So there are many emotions besides fear that lingered in my mind about the protests. There was laughter, there was humor, there was actually moments in which of uh, interesting conversation, despite this being a, a so-called anti-American movement where Chinese could laugh at me. There was relief because my, former, uh, my long-time friends didn't avoid me when I was there. There's a fear in an old-style political movement in China. A lot of times the people who suffered most were the people who were seen as too connected to foreigners, but, foreign, but here they didn't mind it. There was laughter because there were good political jokes being told. People were talking, even during this nationalist movement, making fun of Li Peng, the leader that they thought. The jokes don't translate very well, but um, they were funny in Chinese. Um, The only joke I can sort of tell you that might have a chance of laughing is that um, there was a joke going around in Shanghai making fun of the Beijing students, again, this, this rivalry between students, talking about some students from Tsinghua University, which likes to think of itself as the MIT of China. And some Shanghai people think is pretty full of itself because it's both in Beijing, which is, sees itself as superior to Shanghai, and is one of the top schools. So there's a group from Tsinghua University who were going down to the um, American embassy to throw um, to throw fruit at the embassy. But one of the guys was really hungry, and so he ate up all the tomatoes on the on the way they got there. So they got there and they were all revved up with nothing to throw. So that was. There was laughter, there was relief, there was disappointment in the way the press was covering it, both in China and in the West. There was frustration at being unable to get across the fact that this might not have been an American conspiracy to scare China, that there might be something else going on. There was frustration at the idea that the Americans were thinking of this as anti-Americanism that would mean people would hate all individual Americans that wasn't happening. All of these things other than other than fear, were going on. So, um, does everybody recognize that image there? Che Guevara. che Guevara. And now I'll tell you what my first reading of this sign was. Here was a student at a Yankee Go Home rally, essentially an anti-Americanism rally, anti-American imperialism rally. Sorry. And he's wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt. Che Guevara being a international revolutionary <coughs> symbol who was very much identified with anti-American imperialism movements. I thought, here was the perfect choice for going to this particular protest. And I brought this picture home. I'm only showing you part of the picture now. But I brought it home. I was teaching at Indiana University then, and I showed the whole picture, which I'll show you in a minute, to a student in my class who was very interested in China, a Western student who was... um, just interested in protest around the world. He was into anti-globalization stuff. And I told him what this picture meant. And he says, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. I said, what do you mean? That's Che Guevara, isn't it? He says, yeah. And Che Guevara was about anti-imperialism. He said, yeah. But look at the guy next to him. All right. Can anybody, is anybody here who's, say, under 40, Uh, No, over 40, who can tell me what the other T-shirt is a picture of? Anybody under 30 who knows, under 40 who knows? Who is that? Kurt Cobain. Cobain. All right. Kurt Cobain, the um, singer from Nirvana. Um, And he's standing next to the guy wearing the the Che Guevara T-shirt. And the two of them are friends. They picked out these shirts probably together, at least this was the reading of my student, which was more astute than me. And he said, yeah, that's Che Guevara, but you know what Che Guevara t-shirt it is? Anybody want to give? tell me? It's the cover of the Rage Against the Machine album cover that uses Che Guevara. So these two two students picked out a wonderfully appropriate pair of t-shirts to wear to an anti-American imperialism rally by youth who were asserting their generational identity. They were of youthful uh, rebel figures, both of whom happen to be associated with American rock bands. Now, they're politically radical rock bands, but the reading of this movement as being a complete rejection of American culture is actually much too um, simplistic. So that's a dangerously self uh, puncturing any sense of self-importance. But I think it's a lesson in humility of the complexity of carrying out a kind of cultural analysis and being open to complex readings in a time of globalization when international currents don't necessarily, can't be easily simplified as um, there being one kind of symbol that represents America. There are multiple ones. And in the book, I also talk about how globalization... Americans often think of as meaning Americanization, but actually the circulation is much more um, multidirectional in China as well, and that many of the things that when an international trend takes hold in China, it can often not so much be coming from uh, the United States, or it may come from the United States, it may come from somewhere else. And here in closing, I'll say that one symbol I like to talk about, when we think about Globalization and consumption and popular culture. Americans often think of McDonaldization of the world. In fact, McDonald's can be many different things in different places. But I like to say one other way to think about globalization is the karaoke karaokeization of the world. Karaoke is incredibly popular in China. It's something that, according to most accounts, began in the Philippines, gained great popularity in Japan. When it's practiced in China, sometimes the songs people sing are Canton pop from Hong Kong. Sometimes they're Elvis Presley or the Beatles. They're coming from all different parts of the world, being blended together in different ways. And the story of globalization is much more complicated and much more interesting than being reduced to a story of Americanization and anti-American sentiment. Thanks for your attention. I'd like to know any questions. (laughs)